John chapter 7, as we finish up this section of the book, and we'll change into another theme shortly. John 7, starting in verse 37, I would remind you this is the Word of God, and it has two authors. One wrote it to a specific time and place in human history, that man, John. Another Holy Spirit wrote it specifically for all of God's people throughout time and history. So written for you specifically today. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you again for your word. We thank you that we've just read in Isaiah 55 that it it accomplishes its purposes, your purposes. And Father, we recognize, we know those purposes are twofold. It is either to, to lead us to life or to further condemn us to death. It is either to strengthen us in your grace and mercy or to increase our judgment and heart and hearts. And we do trust that both of those purposes will be fulfilled today. So we ask that you would speak and we would listen. In Jesus' name, amen. There is no such thing as a free lunch. I remember as a child being taught that, which at the time was really hard for me to understand because with mom and dad around, there was a free lunch every lunch. (laughs) As a kid, I didn't get that. And the idea that you would ever have to pay for kind of everything, that there's always a catch, that there's always a hidden kind of offer, there's always kind of a, a hook at the end of it. 
I didn't really understand until I was older. So as a kid, I loved all of the things that as an older adult, you kind of don't really enjoy as much. I loved storms as a kid because I was never the one that would have to pay for any of the damage. We went outside and played in the front yard in the middle of Hurricane Hugo. It was awesome. We looked at the trees and threw stuff around and wouldn't realize we'd left the dog out back. We had a great time. But as you get older, you realize that there's a catch to the deal. There's always something. There's never something that's truly kind of given for free. Someone's always going to get something out of it. The result of that is that the older you get, the seemingly kind of more cynical you get about a lot of these things. What are they trying to sell me? No. No. Uh, I answer the phone, you know, here. It's amazing how many people call the church and the various creative ways they have to try to sell us a copier that we don't need. It's astonishing the different tricks they have to try to get me on the phone. This passage is going to be kind of, in many ways, the antithesis of that. We're going to get a deal offered, so to speak, in the middle of the great feast, and it's, it's not really going to have the catch. It's not going to have the hook. It's actually going to be the real deal. It's the greatest offer ever made. It's not just the best deal in town. It's the best deal of all towns, of every town, of ever in town. It is the best offer in human history. But in order to understand it, this one particularly, you know, I always do setting. I always do a little bit of background so the story kind of pops on the page. This one is really important to understand. You remember they've, in this chapter, been uh, in the Festival of Booths. It's the Festival of Tabernacles, uh, depending on your translation. And this is the the festival at the end of the year, uh, October-ish. Uh, where the Jews would celebrate a number of things. One, they would celebrate the harvest and the Lord's blessing in that regard. Uh, They would also, uh, and kind of more importantly, celebrate the Exodus. Um, Not necessarily the Passover, but the Exodus itself, which is why they kind of lived in booths. They remembered their wandering in the desert. It would remind them of God's provision. And one of the, the high points of this kind of religious feast of, you know, large period of time that they had, came uh, on one specific day, this day, the great day. And at the end of the feast, we would kind of significantly, the whole town, really, would converge on the pool of Siloam. And the priests would leave them, lead them in some sort of kind of religious ritual that had a number of kind of pieces to the event. All of the men of the town, the, the religious leaders, the priests, they would all converge on the Pool of Siloam. And all of the men that would attend this religious festival would have in their hands, they would carry kind of harvest materials. Carry wine in one hand, carry food in the other hand, and would march in kind of and gather around and would sing the psalms. They would sing Psalm 113 through 118 as part of this kind of religious festival, uh, harvest Products in hand, praising the Lord with his word. And then at the end of the singing, at the end of the song, the priest would take a golden pitcher of water and would pour it back into the pool as part of the kind of religious ritual. Well, why is that going to be important? Well, because that's actually the moment where Jesus stands up and starts talking. (laughs) 
And so, and they're in the middle of thinking the harvest and praising God for his provision. Psalms 113 through 118. Those are your uh, Hallel Psalms. They're, they're praise songs. Yay, praise the Lord. Remember, 17 is the really short ones. Give thanks to the Lord. Praise God. In the middle of this thinking thoughts of harvest and praise, in thinking thoughts of uh, you know, the water right there in front of them, ultimately it would have been pointing them towards the ministry of the Messiah. They would have known this is the portrait of the Messiah. Jesus stands up in the middle of them and gives the best offer in human history. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And that would have been a big deal. Because they would have, in their minds, already been kind of connecting back to what we've already read, haven't we? We read Isaiah 55. They would have known. This is the language not of a regular man. This isn't the language of a man that's kind of like operating a lemonade stand, perchance, right next to the pool of Salome. Oh, Happy, you know, luck that is, so to speak. You've got a lemonade stand right next to the giant religious festival. No. Here Jesus is referring explicitly to God's word, explicitly to Isaiah 55, and giving the offer that God Almighty himself has given. He's taking the words of the Father and making them his own. You remember we've been talking about it for several chapters now that um, there are a lot of options for how we can kind of view Jesus. Uh, A good moral teacher is not one of them. That's not really an acceptable category because here and in about every other time he speaks in John chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, which we're going to come to, he's claiming to be God himself. They get it. All the Jews get it. The Pharisees get it. The crowds get it. They all know what he's talking about. We tend to not because we don't really read the Old Testament as much as we should. If we did, we'd go, oh, he's being very clear here. And he's offering them. And if anyone is thirsty, let him come to Christ and drink. And this is more than just, again, uh, I didn't have enough water this morning. My tea is cold. I don't really feel like drinking that now. Maybe I should get a cup of lemonade. We're not talking that type of thirst. This would have reminded them, again, of the exodus. This would have drawn them back. Remember, this is the, the Exodus holiday, the Exodus feast. They would have remembered Exodus chapter 17 where all of God's people are traveling through the desert and they don't have enough to drink and they're dying and grumbling and complaining of, of lack of water. And so God provides a rock that is struck and outflows the water of life. The water that keeps the nation of Israel alive, their only hope in the desert. You see, this water that Christ is kind of capturing, he's using as an illustration, would have kind of drawn their mind to three things, really. It would have called them to think of the exodus and the water from the rock, which would have given the idea of, of um, you know, sustainability, life in the desert, that I'm not going to die. This idea of satisfaction. 
It also would have called forth the idea of the rain and the harvest. Remember, they're standing there with harvest materials that are only in existence if it's rained and God has provided water. And they're standing there thinking and longing for the day of the Messiah, which would have been strongly connected. And here Christ in one simple offer presents to them, in essence, the convergence of all three of those things. If you want the Messiah, God's anointed minister, he's here. If you want blessing from God, if you want his sustaining mercy, it's here. If you want life, the only one who can keep you alive, who can satisfy your soul and those longings within you, it's here. He is in your midst. And it's in this thing we see Christ is the only one who offers to satisfy our souls. Not only is he the only one who offers, he's the only one who can satisfy our deepest longings and needs. And you may remember this when you were young. I'm sure you learned this in school, but they teach you uh, the, the basics, kind of the necessities of life. And you have to talk about the order of importance and what you need. You need food, you need shelter, you need water. And it's funny how simplistic that list is. Because the reality of the matter, it's insufficient. They don't talk about certain things. You actually need physical touch. You know that? Orphanages in other parts of the world, if the babies are not regularly held for no other purpose than holding them, what happens to them? They die. It's part of one of those things kind of necessary to love. We have to have affection of some kind. But even more than that, all of those things simply sustain our body. But there's a greater longing on the inside. I mentioned it earlier in the prayer, but God has created humanity in such a way that we cannot be satisfied ultimately with the things that are within us. It was that way from the very beginning. That's how Adam was made. When Eve was made from him, she was made the exact same way. It's the nature of humanity to be unable to be satisfied on the things within us. It's not enough. We can't be content with what we are. Now, the perfect thing in heaven, I mean, in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve was perfect about that, is that they were perfectly related with God. They were righteous. They were in his presence. They knew him. And so they were fully satisfied in their meaning with him. But as the fall happens, that relationship is fractured, that satisfaction in Christ is destroyed with the arrival of sin, and then people feel those longings come back with a vengeance. You know, and honestly, some of you, you've been believers for a long, long time, and you kind of forget that part. We kind of forget sometimes what it's like to live apart from Christ and to wake up and spend every day of that kind of that dissonance, that, that incongruity, the, the cogs of your soul are off because you know there's a hole there and you cannot figure out what to shove in it to make it stop hurting. 
And you see, that's actually, I think, at the heart of what Christ is offering here. If you're thirsting, if you have that, that longing in your soul, if you're dissatisfied with your world, if, if you lack meaning, if you lack hope, if you do not have a proper biblical righteous identity, all of it's offered in Jesus. In Him you have God's anointed one meeting with God's provider, meeting with the life-sustaining work of God. He doesn't just stop there, though. I mean, honestly, that would be the best deal in town. I mean, this is honestly, if you're like kind of looking at the larger church right now in America, those that are in youth ministry, those that are dealing with younger people, those that are in campus ministry, this is one of the primary themes that they're spending their ministry on talking with young people today. Because we have an entire generation that has kind of no sense of satisfaction in life. They feel that void on the inside. And they have yet to, like the, the yuppies that have gone before them, try to solve it with materialism. They have yet to, like the Gen X, like me, just solve it with just sheer sarcasm. doesn't work. <laughs> and then having been raised on the internet and having seen and experienced everything by the time they're 13, they realize there is a hole in my soul and nothing will satisfy it. Which is why they do evil and heinous things many times. Like shootings at schools and other things like that. There's no meaning in their life. They can't find anything to satisfy who they are and what they are. They can't find meaning in their world. So Jesus gives the answer to that, but then actually provides the follow-up, which every deal made on earth, you will remember the follow-up is always where they get you, right? That's where you're like, the oh no, here comes the terms and conditions that I didn't actually read but checked the box when I signed it, right? You know, one of the big deals that happened in our community, the larger company bought the bigger company, said, we'll keep your name, we'll keep all of your people, came in and fired all the top executives, like, well, whoops. Oh, because there was terms and conditions that weren't quite carefully read. Here comes Christ's, and guess what? It's not a hook. It's not a, oh no, it's not a bad deal. It's actually something even better. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Okay, that's fantastic enough as it is. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's going to be satisfied. He's going to be filled from the inside out. And that longing is going to be transformed because God will fill it. He won't be characterized by constant longing. He'll be characterized by constant fullness. Think about the transformation, the good news that is in the world today. I mean, look at our culture. We live in a culture of constant longing. We're constantly consuming everything we can to try to satisfy it. I mean, Christ is saying, look, it's, it's only in me. But not only will you be transformed, will you have fullness flowing out of you? But on top of that, that fullness flowing out of you, verse 39, he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. But they don't have yet because he's still with them. He hasn't died and been raised and been glorified. 
You see, you've got to see kind of multiple principles at work here. First, you're seeing Jesus is the only one who can satisfy our deepest longings. But Jesus doesn't only satisfy our deepest longings. It's, again, not ultimately about you. <laughs> he fixes you. He solves you. He reconciles you. He works in you. But it's not ultimately about you. The Spirit comes and then uses you for a purpose, for meaning, for value, to accomplish something in this life. It's not just that he fixes the hole inside you, the hole in your soul, but then he fills it with the spirit. He transforms you and then he employs you for a purpose to accomplish something, to be used for something. And this right here is, uh, in many ways, I would say the heart of everything that Christianity is and is supposed to be. Man, women, boys and girls start the story at this point broken. Consumers, needy, longing. Again, think of those babies or grandbabies or whatever. They come out and all they do is need. I mean, they are like squishy, adorable little needs. That's all they are. They need food, they need sleep, but they don't want to do it. They need to have their diapers changed, and they make that miserable as often as they can. They need, dis- they need everything, and that's what we come into the world as, and that is our existence. God satisfies need, not just physically, but spiritually. And then he transforms us into being useful, transformative creatures. And the funny thing is... As with all deals, they're a bit polarizing. I mean, some people are like, you, you, you've got to believe, this deal that I got is fantastic. I mean, it's really good. And people are like, well, I'm not so sure about it. And the crowd kind of gives the same sort of ambivalent response. When the people heard these words, some say, this really is the prophet. It's Deuteronomy 18. This is the one that we've had foretold earlier that would show up and would have the words of God. Maybe not the Messiah, but he's a good dude. He's the the good moral teacher. He's a good guy. He's the one prophesied in Deuteronomy 18. Others are like, nah, man. You totally missed it. It's not that guy. This is the actual Messiah himself. Who else would say that he's fulfilling the words of Yahweh himself? Who else would say he's fulfilling the words of God? Who else could it be? And then others are saying, well, no, man, he can't be the Messiah. No. I mean, Christ came, this guy came, and Jesus comes from Galilee. We know know the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee. We know he comes from Bethlehem. Which is really interesting because they could have fixed that with one simple question. I mean, just like, all they had to do was, just go, oh, by the way, did you happen to be born in Bethlehem? But none of them ask that. They don't pause to inquire. I mean, they could have very easily. No, instead, they just kind of wishy-washy, ambivalent over it. And verse 43 kind of explains it. There's division among the people over him. It's polarizing. And you see a diversity of responses to this free offer that he gives. But interestingly here, none of them are to throw themselves in it. In verse 45, we turn to the actual, the hardcore enemies, the worst of the response. And I love two parts of this paragraph. The officers that were sent to seize him earlier in the, in the chapter, they show up, they start talking to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are like, 
uh, where is he? Did you get him? And the officer's like, no, man. No, no, we, we didn't get him. And they said, well, why not? And I love verse 46. They answer and say, no one ever spoke like this guy. I mean, we've heard a lot of things in life. But no one has ever spoken like this guy. The authority with which he speaks, the elegance and the eloquence with which he speaks, the power and persuasion with which he speaks, there's actually a possibility he's the real deal, and I'm not going to be the guy who imprisons the real deal. They don't believe, they don't trust, they're not converted, they're not Christians, they're hedging their bets. So the Pharisees... (laughs) this this shows you a lot of kind of the heart of the pharisees here these next handful of verses they respond by what have you also been deceived listen we know the crowd we know that they're pagans we know they're corrupt we know they're heathens they're ignorant fools but you listen to what they've said Have, have you been deceived verse 48 have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in this crowd that does not know the law is accursed? Uh, the crowd, they're all ignorant fools. But we are the enlightened ones. We're the ones who have all the answers. And have any of us believed? And Nicodemus chimes in. You can kind of see him scratching his head. Um, he handles it delicately because he probably could have been killed were he to not do it so. And just says, uh, doesn't our law require that we at least give a guy a trial? Call me crazy, but isn't that like kind of one of the key principles in the Old Testament? And what do they say? Do they, they say, oh, you're right, that's a good point. You actually pointed out something in the Old Testament to us. No, instead they go, are you from Galilee too? Are you a corrupt fool yourself? Have you fallen in with the, oh, your pedigree isn't any good. You yourself are a moron, sir. And what I want to point out here, in verses 40 through 52, they've just been given the greatest offer in human history. And we see a variety of responses, ranging from, okay, he was a, you know, he's a prophet, he's a good guy, I mean, probably on God's side, to maybe he's the Messiah, but I'm not really going to mess with that, to... Uh, well, he can't be the Messiah because he wasn't born in Bethlehem, but I'm not going to actually do enough reading to figure out if he actually was. I won't inquire. I won't find any answers out. To outright rejection, to militant rejection. And the problem is that all of these answers, in essence, are the wrong answer. Because when it comes down to it, at the end of the day, there are really two choices. One is you subject yourself to Christ or you reject Christ. In fact, actually, Jesus explains this very thing in Matthew 13 in a parable. He uses a portrait of a, a farmer with different types of soil and seed. And he takes good seed and he throws it out into various types of soil. And all of the soil is different. And all of the soil responds a little differently. Some is good soil and plants spring up and there's little fruit and it's a wonderful, healthy little plant. And some soil, the plants grow up, but then they die quickly. And some soil, the plants grow up, but they're choked by weeds. And then some soil, the birds get it before it has chance to grow. And Jesus is acknowledging, look, there's a variety of responses to the truth of God's word. 
But just because there's a variety of answers, anyone who's taken a multiple choice test knows it doesn't mean they're all right. Just because there's maybe 48 answers on the multiple choice question doesn't mean 48 of them are correct. doesn't mean 47 of them are correct. It doesn't even mean two of them are correct. For there's only one. The response that the Christian is called to is none of the illustrations of the people here. It's none of these responses. It's the one that Christ has said, come to him. Drink. Grab a hold of him. Apprehend him. Receive his work. Be filled with the spirit. Be transformed from the inside out. So for us, it's kind of the same thing. Two categories of people. There's one response for us. If we are believers, well, let's start. If we are unbelievers, and we're given this free offer, we, we have a, a great deal of choices. We can dabble. We can go, oh, well, maybe Christ is that guy, but yeah, I'm not really going to mess with it. I'm outright militant persecution. We have a variety of options. But the right one is to go to Christ, taste and see that he is good. To believe in him, to drink from him, to be filled by him. And the best part is, is that for genuine unbelievers, very often at this point in the story, they don't even know what that means. How do I come to him? What does it mean to be filled by him? And the great thing is, it's one of those things you can't see till you're on the other side of it. So you just ask. King Jesus help. Fill me. Teach me. Shape me. Remake me. Now, if we are a believer, well, this actually raises other questions for us because some of us are in that stage in life where we actually maybe have gotten a little bit hard-hearted, a little bit maybe cynical, a little bit dried up. And so this idea of being satisfied in Christ is a little bit far off. You remember when you were first converted, if you were converted later in life. Remember when you were engaged, if you're married. Remember the kind of mind-numbing joy and satisfaction that you find in those moments. That doesn't have to stop in Christianity. As you are mature, to find a rich and fullness in Christ, to find contentment and satisfaction. I would suggest you need to examine your heart. Figure out where you're hard in your heart. Where you've been hardened in your thinking, where you're not looking to Christ where you're not receiving him, believing in him, not trusting in him. But more than that, I would say that for us living in this time, in this place, in this part of the world, in this aspect of human history, this is a theme that must be in our minds when we are talking to the world around us. I was talking with another pastor not long ago who was uh, talking about the, the EE questions. And you know the two EE questions. If you were to die tonight, do you know you'd go to heaven? And then if you went to heaven, would you, um, you know, why, why should you be let in? And they're great questions. The interesting thing is they do reflect two generations ago when they were invented. Because they presume heaven and hell. They presume judgment and they presume God. And it's funny that the postmodernism now doesn't care about any of those things. All they care about is why am I broken on the inside? Why am I so miserable? Why do I seem to have everything that I want and I'm miserable all at the same time? And the answer is because you don't have Jesus. 
So the good news that we need to offer is not just a you get out of hell free card. You, you have to understand that we don't just offer in Christianity that, yes, you can be spared from the wrath of God. That's true. You can. And that's important. But part of the, the, the language of the church today is you can be satisfied in Jesus. You want real and genuine satisfaction. Turn to Christ. That's the good news. And we need to make sure that we ourselves are picking that language up. To make sure that we as God's people are continuing to offer the same thing that Christ has offered. The best deal in human history. If anyone longs, if anyone lacks, come to Christ and be full. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that in our lack we might find fullness in your abundance. That streams of living water might flow from even within us in the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.